because of this kind of relationship that we had, I spent a lot of my time in building up my career because I wanted to be self-reliant and independent. And in the time that I spent in investing into my career, I chose not to invest as much into my relationships. So when my mother wasn't feeling well, my mindset kind of changed about life. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss that keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to MyWorstInvestmentEver.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Ling Ling Tai. Ling Ling, are you ready to rock? I'm sure am. Oh, yeah. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. As an intercultural strategist, Ling Ling Tai helps people and organizations develop intercultural skills to foster successful collaboration and build important relationships to ensure continued business success in a globalized environment. She's a podcaster for the Leaders of Learning podcasts, and she offers her insights through her website, Culture Spark Global. You got that right, Andrew. Yes, (laughs) Ling Ling, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Sure thing. I am from Malaysia. I'm currently based in Singapore. So you mentioned a little bit about my podcast. I'm always glad to speak with another fellow podcaster. So my podcast is called Leaders of Learning. It launched in January 2018. So I'm just uh, shy of two years old, not as experienced as you are, Andrew. And the uh, podcast is about learning in the 21st century, where I interview experts, leaders, and entrepreneurs about how do they incorporate learning into their life and their work and to their professional development as well. Exciting. You know, it's interesting about learning. I was just wondering a while ago, like if a kid in, let's just take U.S., since that's what I know, if a kid in the U.S. is, you know, in sixth grade and they say, okay, we're going to study French this term. And if we go back in time 30 years ago when I was in, you know, maybe a little bit longer than that, but let's <laughs> say about 30 years ago when a sixth Someone's grader, revealed their age. Yeah, yeah. 30 <laughs> years ago when a kid in sixth grade went and studied French, how much more efficient are we at that kid getting to, let's say in 30 years ago, they would have gotten, you know, over one term, they would have gotten to a certain level of French language. Now, assuming they had, you know, interest in learning and all that. And if that same exact kid went in today and they had the same amount of time, how much further along would they be? In other words, would it be double, triple, quadruple? I mean, look at all the technology that's out there. I mean, it should be amazing how fast kids are assimilating or is it kind of close? I wonder. You're exactly right. So if any learning could be done faster, the difference between 30 years and today is because of the accessibility to content, to knowledge in order to get learning much faster. Because 30 years ago, the kind of access we have are cassette tapes and textbooks, right? I mean, how much can you learn from a 30-minute cassette tape as compared to like millions of 
YouTube videos teaching you how to speak in French. So there's mm. that difference there where learning can be much faster today than it was 30 years ago. But because of that as well, there are plenty of other kids in other nations who do not yet have access to technology. Maybe they don't have internet as fast enough. Maybe they don't have access to YouTube and are still using textbooks and cassettes. Mm -hmm. So while we might believe that, okay, learning today is much faster, but not everyone has equal access to what we have. Good point. And when you talk about that, you know, what you're really talking about is the access to content is a major difference. I guess another question that I've always wondered is like, has the learning methodology somehow improved? Like, I got to get a hundred vocabulary words into my head by Friday. Do we have a faster way of doing that? Or is it pretty much as hard as it always was? I think it's evolution because right now, because the world is a lot more interconnected and globalized. So if one method is being experimented in a community, the news of that will go quickly to a different community, probably on the other side of the earth, and they might experiment it. And it evolves over time. Mm. So it really depends on the implementation as well. So yes, you might have all these fantastic learning education methodologies facilities out there but the will political will of governments and ministries to want to push that out to schools is a different story altogether so yes we have all the latest latest greatest methodologies technologies but still access still political will all of that it has to be taken into consideration too definitely an, an issue i know in thailand the ministry of education is probably 30 years behind you know. <laughs> it's the same with Malaysia and Singapore too. So I see Singapore putting in so much effort in trying to upgrade their teaching methods, their facilities, both in schools, primary, secondary, tertiary, as well as adult education. Whereas in Malaysia, the citizens have been calling for education reform for probably 30 years and it still hasn't reformed as much. The only reform is probably making sure there's internet access in the school, but maybe with dated computers. It's interesting because I saw, I think it was the Minister of Education in Singapore had announced a while ago that they would stop ranking students. And that is something that one of my teachers from many years ago talked about the damage that is done when we try to rank people and all that. So that I felt like that was something that was pretty interesting. That's a progressive step forward, Mm, most definitely, because the world is not about ranking anymore. (laughs) Well, and also, you know, a lot of the ranking, there's some certain amount of randomness in there that we're rewarding. And in fact, it's just ups and downs over time. So, you know, anyways, (laughs) a lot to talk about. I think for listeners out there, you should be going and listening to Leaders of Learning. Just type it into whatever podcast app that you use and you'll find it now. Exactly. Ling Ling, it's time to share your worst investment ever. And -hmm. since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right. So as I introduced myself earlier, I'm born in Malaysia, but had the opportunity to live and work in many different places. I am from a typical middle-class traditional Chinese family where the values that were taught in my family was of prudence and, well, at worst, frugality. And this comes from my parents who were not from a middle class family. They actually worked really hard 
from a life after World War II, the Japanese occupation. So they have experienced poverty and know what it's like to be financially insecure, being hungry all the time. So of course, I understand my parents, they want the best for, for me and my siblings. And we were taught the value of being prudent, being frugal. And also when it comes to taking risk is low risk or no risk. <laughs> as much as possible and try to get as much value out of low risk and no risk. Fortunate or unfortunate, it kind of shaped the decisions in my life and the things that I choose to do. Mm -hmm. And I say this not just for my family, but I reckon a lot of other families in my generation also experience the same thing. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So that's the bit of background of my worst investment. And you might be wondering, how can there be a worst investment if I don't invest in anything, right? (laughs) If I only look at low and no risk investment. Well, there is a downside to low risk and no risk. And that is because you are so afraid of investing in anything, you miss the opportunity to invest in things that matter to you. So why I say this is because a few years ago, actually why I became self-employed is because I lost my mother and it was very, very sudden. For many, many years as a typical Chinese family, so sometimes it feels like my relationship with my mother is very much like Joy Luck Club, where there's so much love between us, but because there are different cultural expectations, our relationship was wrought with conflict and tension. So she wants certain things for me. And those are things that I don't really want for myself. And even though we love each other, there's just that that tension. So throughout my life, I had the mindset of I want to be independent. I want to be able to be self-sufficient. I want to rely on myself. I don't want to be a good housewife and rely on a rich man because I don't know, my parents' generation seems to want that for their kids and want their daughters to marry someone rich. Yeah, that, that was it. Because of this kind of relationship that we had, I spent a lot of my time or I invested my time in building up my career because I wanted to be self-reliant and independent. And in the time that I spent in investing into my career, I chose not to invest as much into my relationships. So when my mother wasn't feeling well, my mindset kind of changed about life. Because when you are very, very close to death and when you see death right in front of you, your whole outlook in life changes. So it's no longer about money. It's no longer about accumulating material wealth. It's really about what is it that you truly value in life and are you actually investing that money and that time into the things that you value? So I took it really hard when mom passed away because it was so sudden. She announced her illness end of 2016 and three months later she was gone. So that was, that was really, really fast. And it took me a long time to recover from that too, because I had to take a step back to grief most definitely, but also to reevaluate, is this how I want to spend the rest of my life chasing dollar signs, but neglecting the people who are important to me and neglecting my well being, neglecting the things that really give me joy, neglecting all of that. So if I were to summarize, my worst investment is really not investing enough on the things that matter to me. Got it. And what lessons did you learn over this experience? What lessons did I learn? 
My mom used to say that if it's a problem that can be solved with money, it's not a problem at all. If it's a problem that cannot be solved with money, then it's something you have to look into. Mm. So I start to look into things that are not monetary. My own well-being, my own health, that's one. My relationship with my family, so my father who is still around, as well as mm. my, my siblings, my brothers. I start to relook at how do I pursue my career, what kind of impact that I want to make on the world. So prior to this, I had 12, 13 years of corporate learning and development experience, traveling all over Asia Pacific and Europe and the US. It was fun, for sure. I met loads of people, I learned lots of stuff. But after that, it felt like when death comes knocking on your door, you can't bring it with you anymore. So what do you want to leave behind? Mm, mm. Well, let me summarize some of my takeaways. The first one is, uh, is that one thing that I remember when I was young, I was, went to school at Cal State Long Beach and mm -hmm. I had a Cambodian girlfriend at the time, Moni Roth, and she had a family of 11 people and you know a remarkable story of escaping Cambodia and all that. So I learned so much about Asian families from her and other people that I got to know when I was in university. And I always felt as though Asian families were really very close, particularly compared to, let's say, American families. And then I, I came to Asia and I found out that actually that's wrong. Mm -hmm. My perception was, was just a perception. The reason why I say that, now that's not in all cases, but the point I made is that I was talking with a friend of mine about a problem I faced and they said, what, what did you do about it? And I said, I called my dad. He said, you talked to your father about that? <laughs> and then I started to realize that actually in families in Asia, the communication, the depth of communication is oftentimes not very deep. There's many things that, you know, young people can't tell their parents. Parents may overreact to things. And the ability to go to their parents for support is sometimes hard. And a lot of young people will end up relying on brothers or sisters, friends, but not go to their, their family and their parents. So what I had done at the time is I had mistaken physical closeness that Asian families stay together. They take care of each other. You know, they support each other in that way with emotional closeness. Mm -hmm. And this kind of, this story reminds me that, you know, that's something that, that I really valued that, you know, my dad and my mom, you know, they were really close. You know, I was able to share anything. And I realized that, you know, maybe even in America, that's not that common. The other thing, the thing you're talking about is, you know, what do you value and, and what is your impact that you leave on life? And I think when, when you're young, you don't even think about that because the end of life doesn't, you know, it's a distant thing that you wouldn't even think about. Exactly. But, you know, recently I was reading, you know, a great book by a great author and it's like his seventh grade book. And I thought, how many great books could he write in his life? Nine, 11, you know, there's a, there's a physical limit. So what you could do, and that's when I started to realize, you know, for myself, like, what is it? What is my legacy? And the other thing that it reminds me of is the idea that, you know, they say that you can't take something with you when you die. 
so how do we live on? And I think that how we live on is in the spirit of others. That somehow we've touched people in a way that there's something that lives on from us. And well, so, let's say if what you leave behind is a good thing, a, a memory or a legacy that people find really positive. Because once you go, you don't have control of the legacy that you have. So people could take it and twist it to their own agenda and, and things like that. And I'm like, I don't know if I actually want that or not. <laughs> well, I think about it. This teacher I had, Dr. Deming, when, when he was 91 years old and I was 25. Mm-hmm. And this man stood up for two days straight talking about what he was passionate about. And he influenced me for the rest of my life. And then I have wow. a student who came to me and said, you know, you taught me my first class in finance in 1992. And it's because of that class that I went on to do a master's and then a PhD in finance and teach finance. And I thought, you know, I didn't know that much about finance at the time, but I brought a lot of passion and energy. And then you realize that passion and energy for what you're doing can really change the world. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we, people often say, you know, find what you're passionate about and do it. So, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. different things that you made me think about by going through this. Anything, anything else that you would add? Well, I wanted to add about your perception of, Asian families. So it's not fair to generalize all Asian families, especially now when we're living in a globalized world and there's access to or exposure to different cultures. So that exposure to different cultures, of course, will influence the dynamics of families and how they communicate with each other. But I also want to also agree with you in a sense that families in Asia, they're close in a traditional sense. But I suppose because of the higher sense of hierarchy where parents are seen as authority figures. They're the ones supposed to take care of the kids underneath them. And they're the ones who make the decision. So because of that distance, therefore the communication is a lot more stunted. It's not as open as families in the U S but I also won't generalize throughout the U S no generalization here (laughs) where families are a lot more informal and there's less of a authoritarian kind of distance. I'm not saying parents are authoritarian, but it's because of the hierarchy, the respect for elders that help shape and influence the communication or non-communication. So I suppose from your perspective, communication is really just sharing what's on our minds, what our concerns are. Asian families do that too, but probably in a more muted, I don't know if muted is the right word. Well, maybe less verbal. Less verbal, yeah. So less open, maybe with a look or a facial expression or a smile or a twitch in the eye or something. And, mm. you know, the other person would know what is it that you're going or, through. Or someone, you know, making a meal for you and serving it and saying, you know, through that action, you know, yeah. They care or they love you or whatever. They, they may not express it in the same way. Yeah, Yep. exactly. Great. So it's great, different forms. Great point. And of course, one of the biggest fallacies that we can make in logic is sweeping generalization. So you're very right that I think for the dramatic effect, the way I told that story. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess what, what I, the other aspect to it is you can think about the cultural cultural framework through which each of us look at things. So I'm, of course, looking through 
a cultural framework when I'm looking at Asia from, you know, from the U.S. Although now, after living in Asia longer than I've lived in the U.S., things are have you adopted little... more of a Thai kind of culture in your behavioral repertoire? Well, I think there's two things that would be evidence of that. The first one is that I try to avoid conflict in life and in business and stuff that I go out of my way to avoid that. Whereas if you were back in the US, there's no reason to avoid conflict. Mm -hmm. But in Thailand, there's really no major benefit that comes through conflict. That's the first thing. And then the second one is that when my father passed away, you know, just the idea of my mother coming and living with me isn't something that I would have thought about when I was living in the US. And even my sister, you know, the way she thought about it was different. But basically the idea of getting mom on a plane with me and bringing her back to Thailand and now living with me now for almost four years oh, wow. is something, something I would have never have done if I hadn't have been kind of, let's say, cultured or socialized, you know, in Thai, the way mm -hmm. Thai people look at family. Mm -hmm. And that definitely, I would say, is a concrete thing that can kind of give, give some support as to whether I've adopted some of the, the way of thinking. So. Yeah, it is not common to live with your mom still. <laughs> but she's awesome. Mom. <laughs> Mom's yeah, moms listening. are awesome. <laughs> yeah. If you're a mom, you're awesome. Yeah, exactly. All right. So based on what you learn from this experience and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? It's okay to take time out and reflect what matters to you. Because when we're too busy with our day-to-day -day life, we don't really sit to think whether what we are doing actually means anything in the long run. So if, like, say you missed an appointment today or you have to go to a meeting because some boss or someone senior says it's urgent, but then you haven't finished your homework or whatever. If you think about it, what is the impact that will have on you one year from now, five years or 10 years from now, if the impact is not significant, then, then it's okay. Sit and reflect. Think about what means to you, what is, what is of value to you, what you cannot live without. And also consider, are you putting enough time and effort into that or not? Because time is, everyone has a time limit. We just don't know when that limit is. Mm -hmm. Great. So last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? So as I've mentioned earlier, I've got my podcast leaders of learning. I'm having so much fun producing that podcast show. It's recently passed 400,000 unique downloads. I'm very, very pleased. I'm hoping to produce two more seasons for this year, and hopefully I will get more people to be excited about learning. That's one. And for my culture, Spark Global, I am working on a new training program. So I'm doing some research and putting some materials together. It'll be focused on helping leaders and managers to better lead a multicultural team. That's exciting. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Ling Ling, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones who has turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching 
moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I said this in one of my talks a couple of years ago, and it keeps coming back to me time and time and again, which is your decisions determine your destiny. So what you decide from moment to moment will help you shape where you're going to go in life. So be very mindful about what you decide to do with every moment. Fantastic. And it's a reminder also to build a skill in decision-making. Exactly. Mm, fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.